Onassis Foundation presents Apply Dagger, Heidegger's Thinking in Being and Time Explained, a podcast series with professor and philosopher Simon Creechley. Hello there, episode nine. Um, what I want to do in the in this episode and the following one is talk about paragraph 43 and 44 of Being and Time. These are paragraphs on reality and truth. So let's begin with reality. Now, paragraph 43 on reality is a brief but exceptionally rich paragraph that has uh, significant implications of how we read Heidegger and how we understand his relationship to traditional philosophy and in particular, the theses of realism and idealism. So to make a start, let me take four theses, four theses on the relation of thought to things or mind to world. Those four theses are transcendental realism, empirical idealism, empirical realism, and transcendental idealism. I'm going to repeat those. Transcendental realism, empirical idealism, empirical realism, and transcendental idealism. The first thesis, empirical idealism, is the claim that empirical objects are simply ideas in the mind. This is the thesis associated with the estimable Bishop Berkeley, Essay S. Perkibi, to be is to be perceived. And this is what Kant refers to uh, in his refutation of idealism as psychological idealism. This is in the Critique of Pure Reason. And empirical idealism is the claim that knowledge is knowledge of a subject dependent but unreal world. So empirical idealism, uh, or reality is just ideas, and those ideas depend on their being perceived by us, by the subject. That's the the first thesis. The second thesis is transcendental realism. Now, this is the dominant position in the history of philosophy prior to Kant prior to Kant's Copernican turn. One finds it in Plato, Descartes, but it persists all over the place with anybody that's claiming some uh, thesis of what we might call external realism, whether they're eliminative materialists or whatever they might be. Now, the idea of transcendental realism is the idea that the objects of our cognition are transcendentally real, that they have the constitution which we represent them as having independently of our mode of cognition. So things have the constitution which we represent them as having independently of our mode of cognition and that things can be known as they are in themselves. So transcendental realism is the claim that knowledge is knowledge of a subject independent real world. And there are various, you know, uh, revivals of this claim of transcendental realism. One uh, recent 
fairly recent revival, is that of Quentin Meassou. Quentin Meassou in his book, After Finitude. So that's the second thesis, transcendental realism. The third thesis, empirical realism. Now, empirical realism is the claim that the world feels real. It feels really real. It feels like a world of solid, palpable objects. And it does not feel as if these things are simply ideas in the mind. This goes back to um, the great Samuel Johnson's critique, refutation of uh, Berkeley, which he did by kicking a stone. By kicking a stone, we show that the stone is real. It feels real. But to explain this third thesis of empirical realism, we need to explain the fourth thesis and um, turn to Immanuel Kant. The fourth thesis is transcendental idealism. Now, transcendental idealism begins from the distinction between objects as things in themselves and objects as appearances. Transcendental idealism is the thesis that the objects of our cognition are mere appearances, that is, they're empirically real, but they are transcendentally ideal. Empirically real, but transcendentally ideal. To say that they're transcendentally ideal is to say that things, objects, are not known independently of our subjectivity and its mode of cognition, the constitution that we represent them as having. Rather, our mode of cognition determines this constitution. Now, this is the meaning of the Copernican turn in Kant. The Copernican turn can be explained very simply with the following thought. Knowledge does not consist in the correspondence of subjects to objects as things in themselves, but rather knowledge is the correspondence of objects as appearances to a subject that takes them to be. Things cannot be known as they are in themselves, uh, Kant argues, because that would require an intellectual intuition. It would require our intellect to see into the nature of things in themselves. And for Kant, that's simply beyond our ken. It's beyond our ability. So those are the four theses. And um, we're going to get back to Heidegger in a second. But I'm setting this up around Kant for reasons that will become obvious. The basic advance of Kant's epistemology in the uh, critique of pure reason, what's called the critical turn in philosophy. The basic advance of Kant's position is that it does not suppose, as is supposed by both Plato and Descartes in quite different ways, that in order for knowledge to be possible, there must be a correspondence between thoughts or mental representations and things in themselves. Whether the realm of forms, the metaphysical realities of the soul, God, a material substance, or simply a belief in the radical independence of reality from the mind. 
This is what the American philosopher Wilfred Sellers calls the myth of the given. Right? The myth of the given. There's nothing given that our knowledge corresponds to, nothing given in itself. What we, uh, what we see, what appears to us, is what appears to us. It's subject dependent. After Kant, that which is true is that which is taken to be true, namely that which appears to a subject or self. Now, that which so appears might, might indeed refer to a thing in itself. The thing in itself, Kant suggests, is thinkable. It's not knowable, it's thinkable. But we can never be in a position to know this fact independently of how that fact appears to us. So in Kant's picture, the realm of sensibility, the realm of our empirical intuitions, is our access to a world that is indeed real for us, but that world is always already shot through with conceptual content. It is articulated through the categories of the understanding, what Kant calls the categories of the understanding, and is dependent upon the spontaneity of the subject, which later on in Kant, he'll link to the activity of what he calls the transcendental imagination. But this is why Kant says in the Critique of Pure Reason, the transcendental idealist is therefore an empirical realist. So if we accept Kant's proposition, going back to those uh, four theses, that empirical idealism is false, reality isn't just ideas in the mind, it's really real, transcendental realism is false, because we can't have knowledge of things as they are in themselves. Empirical realism is right. The world feels really real, but the way in which the world feels really real is dependent upon the activity of the subject. It's a subject-dependent uh, reality. So the framing issue that I would like us to think about is that what is the relation of Heidegger's thought to these theses, in particular, the thesis of transcendental idealism. To cut to the chase, Heidegger criticizes both realism and idealism for having an inadequate account of being in the world, where the question of the reality of the external world gets raised without any previous clarification of the phenomenon of world the phenomenon of world as that meaningful existential context that is most familiar and closest to us. Weidegger, something like reality, has to be understood in terms of its genesis in our ready-to-hand dealings with things in the world, in the way in which they are experienced. Heidegger won't use that word, but let's use it to be a little bit clumsy. So, Reality has to be understood in terms of its genesis in our ready-to-hand dealings with things in the world, in the way things are proximally and for the most part, most closely and mostly. The ready-to-hand, as we've seen in these episodes, gets hardened up into the present at hand 
and this presence at hand is then considered to be the first access to the world. As we've now seen by reading Heidegger, this is the purpose of uh, paragraph 13, knowing is a founded mode of being in the world. Knowing is a founded mode of being in the world. And therefore, the question of the reality of the world gets raised without any previous clarification of the phenomenon of the world. Within the epistemological control of the world, being, Heidegger says, acquires the meaning of reality and that which is gets conceived as a relation between two purportedly real substances, thinking things and extended things, res cogitans, res extensa, or in Kant, subjects and objects. So, to quote Heidegger, this is on page 246, 247, the question of whether there is a world at all and whether its being can be proved makes no sense if it is raised by Dasein as being in the world, and who else could raise it? So world, for Heidegger, is disclosed along with the being of Dasein. And the question of the reality of the external world gets raised without any previous clarification of the phenomenon of the world. And for Heidegger, that's the shortcoming in the epistemological control of the world. So, returning to Kant, keeping him in mind, although Kant's position is an advance for Heidegger, this is always the way um, Heidegger sees Kant as um, getting very close to the problem, but kind of staring at the abyss and shrinking back, as Heidegger says. Although Kant's position is an advance, it is problematic because it presupposes two things. The first thing that Kant presupposes is a conception of the subject as what Kant calls the I think. Now the I think has at the very least a family resemblance to Descartes' thinking substance, it's res cogitans. Even though for, um, for, for, for Kant, it's a cogito without an ergo sum, if you like. It's an I think without uh, an entailment between thinking and being. Uh, this would be a longer kind of discussion, which would be appropriate in a course on Kant's first critique, but I don't want to do it here. But the I think in Kant has a logical rather than an ontological function. This is what Kant calls the transcendental unity of apperception. The transcendental unity of our perception is logically entailed from the fact that experience has a unity and a coherence, but it does not imply any ontological insight into the nature or substantiality of the self or the soul. This is the way um, Kant replies to Hume, right? Hume leaves us with distinct bundles of perceptions without any self to tie those perceptions together. The way uh, Kant will answer that is by saying, well, the world, indeed, the manifold of intuition, as he puts it, hangs together. It makes sense. And in order to explain that, we have to presuppose logically an I think that is tying those appearances together. 
So the first problem with um, Kant's position for Heidegger is that it presupposes an I think, which although it's not a uh, completely Cartesian position, it takes over uh, Descartes' position. The second problem with Kant on Heidegger's reading is that Kant presupposes that the subject's relation to the objective world is mediated through representations. Representations. This is what Hegel will call uh, picture thinking. Picture thinking. And the problem with um, that position in, in Heidegger's eyes is that if we see the relationship that the self has to the objective world as one that's constituted through representations, then those representations are contained within the ontology of the present at hand. And that's what Heidegger wants to get us to question. So if we place in question those two presuppositions, the I think and representation, then it might lead us to abandon the entire epistemological construal of the relation of thought to things and mind to world. The world does not first and foremost, proximally and for the most part, show itself as an object contemplatively and disinterestedly represented by a subject within an ontology of the present at hand. Rather, as we've seen in these episodes and working through being and time together, the world shows itself as a place in which we are completely immersed and from which we do not radically distinguish ourselves. And this is Heidegger's thesis of Dasein as being in the world. We cannot separate Dasein from world. Dasein is world. It is world and it is world in a way that is prior to representation and prior to any idea of the I think any idea of the subject. So Kant's thesis of transcendental idealism, although it's an advance, is inadequate insofar as it still moves within a traditional epistemological framework, namely the ontology of the present at hand. And that ontology of the present at hand is the real target, the persistent target of being in time. However, to say that is not to say that Heidegger refuses the Copernican turn, or that Heidegger returns to some pre-critical conception of the relation of thought to being, or that which is. If Heidegger did that, if he went, uh, if he ignored the Copernican turn, then he'd be doing traditional metaphysics, transcendental realism. On the contrary, my hunch or hypothesis is that Heidegger's fundamental ontology is what we might think of as an existential deepening of the thesis of transcendental idealism, an existential deepening. It's a turn away from Kant that moves within the Copernican turn. And hopefully this will become clear. So let's turn to the text a little bit more closely. And I want to signal that there is a, there's a wrinkle in Heidegger's argument, and I want to come back to that wrinkle at the end of these remarks on reality. 
If we turn to the text a little bit more closely on, say, 247, Heidegger refers to Kant's refutation of idealism from uh, B274 of uh, the B edition of the preface to the Critique of Pure Reason. And this little passage in Kant is very interesting for Heidegger because um, Kant says that it, it remains a scandal. Kant says it remains a scandal of philosophy and universal human reason that there is still no proof for the existence of things outside us, for the existence of the external world, and that we have to take this on faith. In what Kant calls his only real supplement to the B edition of the Critique of Pure Reason, there's an A and a B edition, uh, the only real supplement to his argument in the B edition by way of proof, as he calls it, he argues that the mere consciousness of my Dasein, Kant uses that word, the mere consciousness of my Dasein is enough to prove the existence of objects in space outside of me. Now, Heidegger comments on this. He says, by Dasein, Kant means my consciousness of being present at hand in the sense of Descartes. The I think as a, a thinking thing, as a res cogitans. So, and this is worked out on page uh, 247 and 248. So, although Kant seems to offer an ontological proof of the outside world through a self that is temporal, Heidegger would seem to approve of that, Heidegger goes on to say, this is only a semblance. Kant remains mired in the Cartesian ontology of the presence at hand and its metaphysical dualism between thinking things and extended things, between subjects and objects. So on page 248, Heidegger writes, that Kant demands any proof at all for the Dasein of things outside of me shows already that he takes the subject, the in me, as the starting point for his problematic. So that Kant demands proof uh, for things outside of me um, shows that he takes the subject as the starting point for his problematic. Now, for Heidegger, on the contrary, and this is a classic paragraph in Being in Time. This is on 249. I'm going to quote him a little bit here. 249, Heidegger writes, the scandal of philosophy, the scandal of philosophy, those words are Kant's words from this, uh, this uh, footnote in the Critique of Pure Reason that Heidegger is thinking of. The scandal of philosophy is not that this proof has yet to be given, but that such proofs are expected and attempted again and again. Such expectations, aims and demands arise from an ontologically inadequate way of starting with something of such a character that independently of it and outside of it, a world is to be proved as present at hand. Continuing on this quote, 249, 
it is not that the proofs are inadequate, but that the kind of being of the entity which does the proving and makes requests for proofs has not been made definite enough. This is why a demonstration that two things which are present at hand are necessarily at present at hand together can give rise to the illusion that something has been proved or even can be proved about Dasein as being in the world. If Dasein is understood correctly, it defies such proofs because in its being, it already is what subsequent proofs deem necessary to demonstrate for it. It's a long quote, but it's an important one. The scandal of philosophy, the proper scandal of philosophy for Heidegger is to expect that the existence of things outside me is something susceptible to proof. Such an approach begins from an, inad from an inadequate ontology of Dasein. Such an approach begins from an inadequate ontology of Dasein. Dasein defies such proofs because in its being, it already is. Dasein exists on a level deeper than the experience of proof. Proof, the whole issue of proof, the whole problematic of proof for Heidegger remains at the level of the ontology of the present at hand. So when Heidegger's talking about the a priori uh, existential structures of Dasein as being in the world, this is something earlier than proof. This is a key point in this paragraph and indeed the next one. But does that mean that this is prior to proof? Does that mean that the existence of the external world has to be taken on faith? Heidegger says, no. So another quote here, this is from 249 uh, 250. Uh, I won't quote the whole thing, but um, to summarize 249, the bottom of page 249, he says that the, um, the idea that the subject must uh, have to prove the external world um, begins philosophy with the construct of an isolated subject. And this, Heidegger says, always comes too late because we are always already in a world. And then he says on 250, to have faith in the reality of the external world, whether rightly or wrongly, to prove this reality, for it, whether adequately or inadequately, to presuppose it, whether explicitly or not, attempts such as these, which have not mastered their own basis with full transparency, presuppose a subject which is proximally worldless or unsure of its world. Proximally worldless. So all questions of rational proof or indeed faith and indeed the entire opposition between reason and faith. For Heidegger, this comes too late and all these questions have to be referred to what is earlier, to what is a priori. And what is a priori is our being in the world, whose being, we saw in the last episode, has been defined as care. So all questions of reason versus faith presuppose a worldless subject, a worldless subject 
in many ways the, um, the way in which philosophers raise the question of the external world presupposes a self which is worldless. And then we have to think about, well, how do we connect up something like a mind with something like a world? For Heidegger, the self, us, is always already worldly, always already being in the world. So how do we explain um, the persistence of the epistemological control of the world, the subject, object, picture? On 250, he makes an interesting remark. He says, our task is not to prove that an external world is present at hand or to show how it is present at hand, but to point out why Dasein as being in the world has the tendency to bury the external world in nullity epistemologically before going on to prove it. The reason for this lies in Dasein's falling. The reason for this lies in Dasein's falling, in the way in which the primary understanding of being has been diverted to being as presence at hand, a diversion which is motivated by falling itself. This is a, an astonishing claim. Heidegger's saying that epistemology and philosophy kind of winds up as epistemology on a certain reading after Kant. Introductions to philosophy or introductions to epistemology, things like that. Epistemology, the epistemological control of the relation of thoughts to things is a symptom and consequence of Dasein's falling, of its falling. We saw that falling in the constitution of um, Dasein in chapter five. So we fall, we fall to the world, we fall at the world. We're fascinated with the world. We're absorbed with the world. Heidegger's thought here is that philosophy as epistemology um, begins with this falling and misinterprets it, transforms it into a conception of the world as present at hand. So philosophy, we might say, the entirety of philosophy is a misdescription, a misunderstanding of our falling being in the world. The entire epistemological control of the world is a consequence of Dasein's tendency towards falling. What we have to do is something much more radical if we're going to think with Heidegger. We have to put that ontology of the present at hand to one side. We have to dig in to the phenomenon of, of falling and pose the question in a different way. And that's the way in which we've seen in uh, earlier in Being and Time. After that, still in paragraph 43, Heidegger then rather delightfully subverts the theses of realism and idealism, showing that he can agree with both realism and idealism and that they're both wrong. So he says on, say, 250, 251, he says, uh, if Dasein is being in the world, if Dasein is being in the world, then entities are given along with Dasein. And therefore, this is consistent with realism. Entities are not in the head 
as in Bishop Barclay. They are really there. But on the other hand, this thesis, Dasein's being in the world, is also consistent with idealism, insofar as Heidegger's claim is that the condition of possibility for any understanding of things lies in Dasein's understanding of being, the worldhood of the world, which is Dasein. Remember, the worldhood of the world is the condition of possibility for the world as such. There never was a world for her except the one she sang and singing made. Hence, reality is subject dependent or subject constituted. In quotation marks, big quotation marks. But if that's true, Heidegger concludes, and this is、uh, what we might see as a Heideggerian attempt at a joke. If that's true, then Aristotle is as much. Of an idealist as Kant, Aristotle was no less an idealist as Kant, if we believe that. So, Heidegger's thesis of being in the world, Dasein's being in the world, is consistent with both idealism and realism, and shows the inadequacy of both theses. It's a brilliant stretch of argument. Um, which I think provokes all sorts of questions about how we think about philosophy,、um, and that's pretty much it in、uh, the first pages of paragraph forty-three. There's a little bit in forty-three B on Diltai and Shaler, Diltai that just preceded Heidegger, Shaler who was a contemporary of Heidegger on reality, but we can put that to one side. It's not terribly important. What is more? Important is、um, is the following. This is the part C of paragraph forty-three, which is called reality and care, and it's very interesting because of a remark that Heidegger makes on page two five five. This is the、uh, the wrinkle in the fabric of Heidegger's argument here. So the claim that Heidegger's making here the kind of simple claim is that reality, the question of reality, has to be understood with reference to the being of Dasein, which has been defined as care. Okay, that's the easy bit. He then goes on to make a peculiar remark, and this is where we see the wrinkle. Two five five, he says, reality is referred back to the phenomenon of care. But the fact that reality is ontologically grounded in the being of Dasein does not signify that only when Dasein exists, and as long as Dasein exists, can the real be as that which, in itself, it is. Can the real be as that which, in itself, it is? So the question is, what does he mean by the real here? But continuing with the quotation. Of course, only as long as Dasein is, is there being. When Dasein does not exist, independence is not either, nor is the in itself. In such a case, this sort of thing can neither be understood nor not understood. That's a helpful sentence, isn't it? In such a case, even entities within the world can neither be discovered 
nor lie hidden. In such a case, it cannot be said that entities are, nor can it be said that they are not. But now, as long as there is an understanding of being and therefore an understanding of presence at hand, it can indeed be said that in this case, entities will still continue to be. As we have noted, being, not entities, is dependent upon the understanding of being. That is to say, reality, not the real, is dependent upon care. A number of things here to point out. Firstly, reality has to be referred back to care for Heidegger. I think this means that reality, as in empirical realism, as taking things as real things, real appearances, um, this is uh, dependent on us, it's Dasein dependent. Therefore, it makes no sense to speak of the independence of reality from Dasein. In the same way as the question of being is dependent on the understanding of being, and hence being is Dasein dependent. Hopefully you begin to feel the issue here, because he then introduces a distinction between reality and the real. The real here is das realis in the text, das realis. To say that reality is founded on care does not entail that the real is what it is only as long as Dasein exists. That is, entities as real have a Dasein-independent existence. What is one to infer from this run of argument, this kind of distinction between reality and the real? Is it that Heidegger is committed to the claim that the reality of things in the sense of empirical lived reality as appearances is transcendentally conditioned by Dasein? That would seem to be Heidegger's thought here. So Dasein as being in the world is a, an existential deepening of the thesis of transcendental idealism. We indeed live in a world that hangs together, makes sense. But the condition of possibility for that world, the worldhood of that world, is us. But there is a notion of the real external to this, some notion of things in themselves beyond their appearances to us, a kind of hardcore to reality, what natural scientists would call nature. Interesting, isn't it? It's not clear what Heidegger's up to, and it's not something he comes back to uh, in the book at all. It kind of poses a question that I think um, moves through Heidegger's work over the decades, so that there is this dimension of the real, this dimension of a Dasein-independent notion of the real, on the one hand, which is independently of us. So ultimately, there's a dimension of the real, regardless of whether we exist or not, right? But all questions of being are dependent upon us. There can only be a question of being insofar as there can be an understanding of being. So. The question this raises, this little passage in, uh, in 255, is what is the dimension of the real in Heidegger, of matter in Heidegger, of the body, of physical nature, 
of what he would call in the origin of the work of art, Earth. Hopefully you see the, um, the force of the, the problem here. So on the one hand, Heidegger solves the problem of realism and idealism by claiming that reality has to be referred back to the phenomenon of care. Care is Dasein's being as being in the world. There is, as it were, a, a world which shows itself up and the condition of possibility for that world showing itself up is uh, Dasein, is us. Yet there is a dimension of the real that exceeds that, a hard core to reality which kind of exceeds that, which is not dependent upon us. And um, this dimension of Heidegger's thought, I think is one that is not explored by him in Being in Time and which comes back here and there in his later work and poses, I think, a really interesting question. So that we are beings for whom being is an issue and being is dependent upon us, but there is uh, a real out there a nature which is not dependent upon us. And what's the relationship between these two issues? Is there not a dualism, ultimately in Heidegger's work, a dualism between the real and reality, between being and reality? And how might one make sense of that, given that Heidegger persistently, as he says in Being in Time, does not want to split the phenomenon? Is this not a little splitting of the phenomenon? That will do for the question of reality. Now we're gonna move on to truth.